16, John chapter 16 for our study this morning. I'm very thankful that it cooled down up here. It's not as warm as it was 10 minutes ago. Hopefully you all share that, that you're not freezing. John chapter 16, continuing our study, the witness to the world, we consider the Holy Spirit of God the witness to the world. Let's just read, beginning in verse 1, our text, our focus this morning will be verse 5 through 11. Jesus speaking, he says, These things I have spoken to you, so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming. For everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when the hour comes you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me and none of you asks me where are you going. But because I have said these things to you sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Let's continue on. Verse 12. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. God, I ask indeed for your help this morning once again. I pray the Holy Spirit of God would be upon me, that you would give me unction from on high, God. Even at this one time, this uh, time this morning, O Lord, because I am in desperate need of you, God, and the people here are in need of you working in their hearts, God. We need your word. Uh, We pray this morning. Holy Spirit of God, that you would indeed do what only you can do for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray, amen. The most prominent theme in Christ's farewell discourse is his farewell, his departure. It's quite different than other farewell addresses that have been made over the years. We consider just history. And when someone leaves office back in the day, they would give a farewell address, farewell speech. I think even Gandalf maybe gave a farewell speech, but then he came back, so it's different. But Jesus' departure was about his death, his death for sinners. Life at times is about loss. If you haven't experienced loss in your life, you will. You will. Some of us have experienced a lot of loss in our lives. It could be losing a job, a loved one, or it could be a severed relationship. And often God takes things from us, and we suffer loss, and He gives us spiritual riches instead that we would not have without this loss. Only the Christian can agree with the psalmist who said, it is good for me that I was afflicted. Psalm 119, verse 71, I believe it is. We don't oftentimes say that when the affliction is coming, but we can look at the past and say, it was good for me that I was afflicted because this is what you have done. 
There is no greater example for us of such loss than the disciples' loss in Jesus' departure to the cross and then back to heaven. But, as we know at the same time, great spiritual riches were given to them by the sending of the Holy Spirit to them and for them, and He indeed would be in them. And this would not happen, as Jesus said, unless He departed. So first and foremost for us this morning, we have a crucial crisis. A crucial crisis. Jesus says, but now I am going to Him who sent me. Back to the Father. And none of you asks me, where are, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. And we would say, understandably so. If we were in their shoes saw what Jesus did, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, walked with Him for three years, were there with Him, shared laughs with Him, were encouraged by Him continually, loved Him in some ways, and then sorrow filling their heart. After He told them, of course, that the world will hate you and that you will be persecuted if you follow Me. Indeed, sorrow filling their heart. Jesus' departure was the main theme of his farewell discourse. He taught them many things over the last several months that they were there with him. But it was not until toward the end when he further explained what his departure really meant. These statements in these verses are on the heels of his imminent arrest and torture, and then crucifixion, and trial, and then crucifixion. None of the disciples at this point were questioning Jesus as far as where was he going. Peter asked this in more on one occasion. Uh, chapter 13, verse 36, I'll just read it for us this morning. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, remember how brazen he was then? Lord, why cannot I follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Thomas asked at one point where Jesus was going. Chapter 14, verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And of course, Jesus responds, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So here they weren't asking anything. They were trying to grasp the fact that he was leaving. And sorrow was in their heart. What more could they ask? What more could they, could they say with such grief in their hearts? Sorrow had overtaken them. But then he says in verse 7, But I tell you the truth. And we know what that means when Jesus says that. It means a profound statement is coming. Take, listen to what he's about to say, what he's going to lay out there. You must hear. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. So there it is, to your advantage, disciples, that I go away. For if, here we got a lot of if statements here, if and buts. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I tell you the truth, and then there's a but in there, and then there's ifs. And then a profound statement I will send him to you. Not I might send him to you or I'll think about sending him to you. I will send him to you. If I do not go away, the helper will not come. A strong double negative here absolutely cannot happen any other way. The Holy Spirit was already at work in the hearts of the regenerate. We covered that a little bit. But not in the way that he would be unless Jesus departed and sent him Day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And we're going to look at that in a little bit. On one hand, it was hard to hear for the disciples that Jesus was leaving. 
but it was absolutely necessary and it would indeed benefit them. So there was a crucial crisis, though. There Jesus was leaving. They were sorrow, uh, sorrowful in their hearts. And then secondly, we have a chartered correction. A chartered correction. Verse 8, And He, when He comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So usually when we consider the Holy Spirit of God convicting someone, we think of the believer. We think, oh, the Holy Spirit of God convicted me in that. And we say yes and amen and praise God for a conviction. For when God convicts us and then we say, okay, what must I do then now, Lord? But here, when he comes, he will convict or he will expose the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. This correction that is chartered right to the world. He, or, or that one, emphatic, demonstrative pronoun, he is the one who is going to do this. We have to consider this closely. The Holy Spirit will convict the world. When we think of conviction... Again, we think about it in the work of our lives as Christians. Yet we find here, although we have studied in John 15, 18 through 25, we find how the world feels toward God and towards Christians. Yet he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And we say, how does this happen? How does the Spirit of God convict the world? Well, let's look at a broad view, and then we'll go to specifics. Let me read this from Richard Phillips here this morning to help us out. There are two main options for how the Spirit convicts the world, one negative and one positive. Negative, it might be that the Spirit comes to condemn the world of its guilt, as a prosecuting attorney seeks to convict criminals today. The main problem with this view is that there is no judge in this teaching. Moreover, when Jesus says that the Spirit will convict the world concerning righteousness, that does not fit the idea of condemnation. An alternative negative view holds that the Spirit will convict the world in a sense of making it see that it is wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment. Aha, we see it here. There is no doubt that this sense captures at least part of Jesus' meaning. To make sense of this passage, however, it must be joined to a positive understanding of conviction. The Spirit convicts the world of its error concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So as to conceive people of Christ's truth in such a way that many repent, believe, and are saved. So we see the positive and the negative. The Spirit comes, convicts the world, exposure of sin, exposure of guilt, sin, and rejecting Christ. And in that work, some will be saved. As we know. Now, if Leon Morris, theologian, is correct, which I didn't double check on this, uh, he says that this is the one place in Scripture where the Spirit is spoken of as performing a work in the world. Many of the other references speak of what he does in the lives of believers. But here in this text, is it explained that the Spirit will act as prosecutor to bring the world under conviction rather than defending the believer. So if indeed this is the only text that speaks of the Spirit doing such a work in the world, we need to understand what it means. The Holy Spirit of God bringing conviction to the world in a threefold activity. We see this developed in the next verses. Apart from the Spirit, the world does not know, as they should, conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Spirit of God comes to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The truth of Christ is taught in a way that man will repent, believe, and be saved. Consider Acts chapter 2. I said we were going to go there, and we're going to go there this morning. Acts chapter 2.
again, as we consider this text, Jesus promises to send the Holy Spirit. We have been reading that in John. The Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost in a profound way, fulfilling Scripture, uh, fulfilling what Jesus said. And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, this is, of course, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then the Holy Spirit sent. Peter preaches his first sermon. The Holy Spirit was present to convict the hearers. So when I read some of this, we want to, cons- we want to consider, and we want to answer these questions. What did Peter emphasize? What did the Holy Spirit do? And how did the people respond? What did Peter emphasize? What did the people, how did the people respond? And what did the Holy Spirit do? Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon, beginning in verse 14. We see Peter taking a stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. And then Peter uh, exposits the the Old Testament. He brings up the Old Testament. He brings up uh, what is being fulfilled right there in their midst through verse 22. Verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So thus far, we have Peter preaching to a bunch of lost people. Uh, 3,000 people will get converted. We will see that. And what is Peter saying? Is he saying Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and uh, this is your best life now? No, this is not what Jesus is, uh, what Peter is saying. He is going to the Old Testament and here in verse 22, he's talking about Jesus, this predetermined plan, and you, listeners, nailed him through the cross. You are murderers, he is saying. Although they did not physically lay their hands on him, at least some of them there did not. And put him to death. So the emphasis is on Christ. He brings up Old Testament verses. He talks about how they are murderers. He's bringing in the law of God. Verse 24, but God raised him up again. He brings in the resurrection, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. He rose from the dead. And then we see again, he quotes David from the Old Testament. And then we continue to go down to verse 32. This Jesus, God raised him up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, the ascension, the exaltation, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, what Jesus says will happen, indeed will come to pass, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, here's another key verse for us this morning, verse 36. We're considering, remember, what did Peter emphasize? How did the people respond, which we will see? What did the Holy Spirit do? What did Peter emphasize? Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, who Jesus is, this Jesus whom you crucified. He's bringing in the law of God again, and he's saying you are murderers. You're guilty for crucifying Christ. Now, what is the response? Now, when they heard this message, what message did they hear? They heard a message of the law, Peter bringing in the law of God, talking about Jesus Christ, going to the crucifixion, talking about the resurrection and the exaltation of Christ, the ascension on high. And what was their response? They were convicted by the Holy Spirit of God. They were pierced to the heart. Verse 27, And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? You see this. Do you see the message that Peter preached and how they responded? What shall we do? Peter did not say to them, Well, invite Jesus into your heart and pray this little prayer, and I'm going to 
you know, we'll pray together and this will be it. And then, you know, we'll send you on your way and all of this. He did not say, we'll just start coming to church. I'm going to invite him to church. I just need to get him to church. I need to get him to church. Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Turning from sin. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord will call to himself. That is who the gospel is for. As many who would come to Christ. You see the emphasis there. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. He talked about what the generation was. He talked about what the world was. He called it perverse. And he talked about salvation. And then we we see the response. Those who had received his word were baptized, and that day were added about 3,000 souls. And what did they do? What did they do then? They continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, sat under the word of God, and to fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ, and to breaking of bread and to prayer. What did Peter emphasize? What did the Holy Spirit do? And how did the people respond? Notice Peter said nothing here about God loving him or loving them. Third point, conviction concerning sin. John 16. Conviction concerning sin. Again, how the Holy Spirit operates in the world as Jesus explains this. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Three main ways to take this. He, the Holy Spirit of God, will convict the world of wrong ideas of sin and that they do, that they don't, do not believe. Secondly, he will convict the world of its sin because they do not believe in general, which is the characteristic sin of the world. Thirdly, he will convict the world of its sin that they do not believe. So, all of these are possible. What matters is he will convict the world concerning sin. Convict the world, lost people concerning sin. Now, two main ways the Spirit convicts the world concerning sin. Because they do not believe in him. He shows, first, he shows the world guilty. He shows the world to be guilty. And secondly, the Spirit shows the world by convicting the individual conscience of sinners. By the way, Holy Spirit conviction of sin must happen or there will be no conversion. No conviction of sin, there will be no conversion. So we must comprehend the means of the Holy Spirit of God that He uses. Again, chapter 16, 8 and 9. And He, when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in Me. The first work of the Spirit in the life of any person is the work of conviction for sin. Robert Murray McShane describes conviction as such. To give him a sense of the dreadfulness of his sins and make him feel how surely he is a lost sinner. We do not show someone their dreadful, lost, and helpless state with a Jesus loves you message. We are called to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and part of the evangelistic gospel of Jesus Christ absolutely must be proclaiming the law, sin, and judgment to come. You say, where do you find that? From the mouth of Jesus Christ. From the Apostle Paul. From Peter. Why do we seek to do it another way? Because we think we know better? Because we don't want to offend anyone. For our witnessing to be useful, 
People must be convicted concerning sin. No conviction, there will be no conversion. People who hate Jesus, the world, remember we we went through that uh, time and time again about how the world hates Jesus and hates Christians who follow Jesus Christ. Do we really think that they are going to be attracted to us because we tell them that we love Jesus or that Jesus loves them? Most people you engage with think that they are pretty good on their own. Pretty good people. That God must be pleased with them. If there is a, if there is a heaven, they will surely be going there when they die. But the Bible teaches the exact opposite, does it not? Since it teaches truth about man without Christ, should we not explain this truth to them as well? To lost people? Fourth, conviction concerning righteousness. And concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. Again, there's, there's that, what Jesus is saying, you no longer see me. Again, imagine how they felt. Here he is saying it again. We're not going to see him anymore. Jesus could mean that the Spirit will convict the world of its righteousness, like a self-righteousness, uh, self-righteousness of a, of a Pharisee or the moralist or the, the legalist who says that this is what Christianity is all about. You wear these clothes, you look this way, you don't do this, you don't do that, you don't go here, you don't do there. That's the moralist and legalist. The Christian says, what does the Bible say and how do I apply this to my life? And God help me to understand it. And apply it in those ways. So it could be taken as the self-righteousness, concerning righteousness because lost people consider themselves, they're righteous, they don't need Christ. Consider the following from James Boyce. This is interesting. James Boyce illustrates this idea of false righteousness by telling the story of a group of prisoners of war in World War II. So you... History buffs finally got your attention now at this point. Well, maybe I had your attention before, but now I really have it. They were permitted to receive care packages, and these included Monopoly games to help them pass the time. Soldiers being soldiers, they took the money to be used as the camp currency, which they primarily used for playing cards. As usually happens, one card player ended up getting almost all the money, amounting to thousands of dollars in Monopoly currency. When he returned home from the war, he brought this pile of paper, which he had, lo- had long come to think as real money and tried to deposit it in a bank account. So here, this man comes back from war, and he has all of this monopoly money that he's saved, and he considers it real money, trying to deposit it into the bank. It was, of course, rejected as fraudulent. Likewise, mankind has developed a counterfeit system of righteousness, that has no currency at all in the courts of heaven. Boyce concludes, Human righteousness is like monopoly money. It has its uses in a game we call life, but it's not real currency. It does not work in God's domain. Jesus reveals true righteousness, and when the Holy Spirit convicts a sinner, his or her false righteousness is also revealed. The Holy Spirit not only convicts the world regarding its counterfeit righteousness, but also, second, convinces the world of true righteousness that is only found in Jesus Christ. When Jesus says, I go to the Father and you no longer see me, of course, this is referring to his resurrection and ascension. Soon Jesus was to be crucified. The Jewish leaders would pronounce a verdict on him saying... We have a law, and by the law he ought to die because he made himself self out to be the Son of God. John 19, verse 7. Condemned, he stood by men, yet his saving work was approved by God. Rejected by the world, but welcomed by the Father. And it was through the bloodstained cross 
that led to his crown. He died and he received his reward. Philippians 2, I'll read it for you. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that every so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. By his resurrection, he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the point is, the very one the world says was unrighteous was in fact the only righteous one. And the only one who could stand in the gap between us and the Father. The Holy Spirit convicts sinners so that they will believe. One must see himself guilty under God's condemnation, then believe in Christ, that he died for their sins, trusting in his righteousness through faith alone. Again, as the Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Next point. Conviction concerning judgment. Conviction concerning judgment. Verse 11. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Has been judged. Perfect, passive, indicative. Passive. This is the third and final convicting work that is mentioned here. First, we have to identify who the ruler of the world is. Right? Who is he? Well, we understand the ruler of the world to be Satan himself. Scripture points out. Uh, John 12, verse 31. Now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Indeed, he is the prince of darkness, the ruler of this world. Yet, when Jesus went to the cross... What happened to this ruler of the world? When Jesus went to the cross, first he nailed our sins to the cross. He put away our condemnation. And Colossians 2 tells us in verse 7, I invite you to turn there. Please turn there. Colossians 2, verse 7 and following. Again, we're, we're on the point of conviction concerning judgment. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged the ruler of this world being Satan, also known as the devil, the prince of darkness. Colossians 2, 7, verse 7. Verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith, in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, Christian, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And verse 15 is our key verse. I just wanted to lead up to it. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. He is already victorious. He has triumphed already. Has Satan been dealt with by Christ? Yes. He conquered him in his death, burial, and resurrection. Satan has been judged. 
Does Satan still have delegated power? Yes. Is this sinful world in his grip? Yes. Will he be cast out ultimately and ultimately judged? Yes. Is his power now limited and curtailed? Yes. Is he stronger, smarter, more savvy than you and I? Yes. Are still some under Satan's domain today, possibly in this sanctuary this morning? Yes. Everyone who is without the Spirit of God because they are not in Christ, they are not born again, they are under Satan's influence, his domain. He, in some ways, he owns you. Ephesians 2, for the Christian, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's who we were, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan. That's who we were. That's, that's where we walked. That's who we followed. We followed the beat of his, of his drum, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, which we continue to see today. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh in our mind. And were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's who we were, Christian, how we once walked. And verse 4 through 6 is who we are now. No longer under the dominion of Satan, no longer bound to your sins, you have been set free. God has dealt with Satan and he is indeed on borrowed time. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, who bore the wrath we deserved, suffered the judgment we deserve for our sin, and He became a curse for us. So those of you here without Christ this morning, since indeed Christ bore God's wrath, and since indeed He became a curse for all who would come to know Him, Since he did that to his son, do you think he's going to give you a pass? Do you think you can slip in under the radar with an omniscient God? The world, under the dominion of Satan, under his influence, rejecting Christ, is convicted already and will face judgment of Almighty God. The verdict is already in. I'll read for you from uh, Revelation 21. No, I won't. I'll read from you for another chapter. 12, verse 7. There was a war in heaven. You can turn there. If you want to turn there, go for it. I'll wait for the pages to stop. I'm in no rush. So far, we have this crucial crisis, a chartered correction, conviction concerning sin, conviction concerning righteousness, and conviction concerning judgment as the Holy Spirit of God deals with the world. The verdict is already in. I'll just read this. Follow along if you would. Revelation 12, verse 7. And there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called devil, the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. He has been dealt with, and he will be dealt with ultimately. So as we consider this text in John, our last point, a call to action and examination. A call to action and examination. 
there's two main applications for us from verse 8 through 11 in chapter 16 of John. Two main applications for us as the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe in Christ, righteousness because of self-righteousness, and judgment because they are guilty before a holy God. Applications for us, number one, for our evangelism, and number two, for our Christian walk and encouragement. So a call to action for our evangelism, and secondly, for our examination, for our Christian walk and encouragement. For our evangelism, sin, righteousness, and judgment. Reminder, the first work of the Holy Spirit is a work of conviction of sin. Sin is the greatest problem in the world, in humanity. Everything that is wrong with humanity boils down to that men are indeed sinners. We boil it all down. All are sinners and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. All unrepentant sinners will stand before God that they know exists. They cannot deny it. But they know He exists, and they will be judged for their sin, including their rejection of Jesus Christ. So in our evangelism, we must make much of sin. We must explain sin, especially to the lost person, so that they understand their wickedness before a holy God. How do we explain sin? Well, we do it the way Jesus did it, the way Paul did it, the way John the Baptist did it, the way the Reformers did it, and the way the Puritans did it. It's called biblical evangelism. And we'll see more of that in Evangelism 101, Lord willing. Sin. They must know. This is part of our evangelism. Remember, this is application. For our evangelism, as the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and the Holy Spirit of God uses us as instruments, we are to be the proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the main reason why we are here. And so one thing you cannot do in heaven, for sure, is evangelize. But we can here, and we're called to do it, and we're commanded to. So we better do it biblically. So the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and uses us to explain the gospel, we must talk about sin. Secondly, righteousness. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of righteousness. How in our evangelism do we explain this? Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So we realize from the get-go that man is, is unrighteous and they are suppressing the truth in their unrighteousness. That's who they are. They know God exists. They're suppressing the truth in their, in their unrighteousness. So we go armed with that fact, knowing that. Also, uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 12, just summarizing, the standard of righteousness is God's holy law. We've been studying the Ten Commandments in Wednesday, uh, Wednesday nights. We've gone through all ten of them. The standard of the righteousness of God's holy law, we use that in our evangelism as well, to explain what righteousness is and what it is not, and what sin is and sin is not. We have ten canons, brothers and sisters, to use. In Romans 3.10, there, are, there is none righteous, there's not one. There is none who seek for God. So we go equipped knowing that there are none righteous without being declared righteous by Jesus Christ. And we go equipped knowing that no man seeks after God. It is God who seeks man. So that frees us up. We just have to be faithful and biblical in presenting the gospel and see what God does. The lost person may say, I'm righteous because I am good, a good person. You know the good person test. If they will answer questions that you give them regarding the law, regarding the Ten Commandments, they will admit to being a blasphemer, a liar, a thief, a murderer at heart, an adulterer at heart, an idolater at heart, who has to face God on Judgment Day. With you just asking questions about their life. True righteousness is only found in Christ. The response needed by the lost person is repentance from their sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. How can one be made righteous? Through faith in Christ, Christ alone. And he declares them righteous and clothed in his righteousness. And then judgment as well. Judgment, the Holy Spirit of God convicts the world with in judgment. How do we do that as instrument of his? Well, statistics are in. Ten out of ten people die. The Bible tells us that everyone who has ever lived will stand before a holy God. Revelation 20, 12 and 13. I got to go with verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. Again, who, who penned this was John, the apostle of love. And I saw the dead and the great and the small standing before the throne, and, and books were open. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, and every one of them according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The Holy Spirit of God convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. In our evangelism, as instruments by the Holy Spirit of God, we are to be useful and speak about sin, righteousness, and judgment. Then the glorious news of the gospel. Jesus' life fully satisfied the law of God. None of us could ever even dream of satisfying the law of God. Jesus completely fully satisfied. The fully man, fully God. Without sin. Jesus' death satisfied the wrath of God. He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He bore the wrath of God. Jesus' resurrection reconciled man back to God. And the response of man is repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Second application for Christians. We consider Holy Spirit of God conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Conviction of sin. Again, we realize and we rest in that a fact for the Christian is that our sin has been nailed to the cross. It has been dealt with by Jesus Christ. We are new creatures created in Christ Jesus. Our debt has been paid by the only one qualified to die for our sins, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. But we know we still sin. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. We are to confess our sin, to kill our sin, and realize and continue to realize that we have been forgiven of our sin. And also we get right with those who we have sinned against. Conviction of sin for the Christian. Conviction of righteousness. We are reminded of whose righteousness we stand in. We're prone to being self-righteous. Some of us, perhaps. Resting or trying to rest in a righteousness of our own when it's the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We have been declared righteous by God. Nothing can change that. We rest in His righteousness, not our own. Judgment. The ruler of this world has been judged. Satan has been defeated. We're no longer under his domain. The reign of sin, terror, wrath has been broken by Christ, in Christ. Christ is king, he is conqueror, we serve him. Do we live like that? Holy Spirit, conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The passage we covered this morning, verse 5 through 11, is primarily about the Holy Spirit's conviction of the world. It's sin, righteousness, and judgment. Understand that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to them, and to us in regeneration. Point, the Holy Spirit works through believers. 
to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's just not a Zappo thing that happens. He uses believers as a primary means. Every conversion in the book of Acts was through the means of someone who was already saved. Think about that. We read one account with Peter. Jesus bore witness to the twelve who bore witness uh, on Pentecost and after. Stephen, stoned to death for preaching a tremendous sermon in Acts chapter 7. Present to hear this sermon preached and read it again. We went over it. I don't remember when it was. Maybe Wednesday night. Maybe Sunday morning. I don't know. Stephen, stoned to death for preaching this message. Present to hear this sermon was Saul of Tarsus. God used that sermon in his life. And we know Paul was dramatically traumatically saved on the Damascus Road. Stephen used in the conversion of Paul, Stephen who knew Christ, preaching the Word of God, used in the conversion of Paul, then the Damascus Road, and then Ananias used as an instrument by the Holy Spirit of God as well, after the fact. The primary way the Holy Spirit moves upon the world and moves upon the world today is through human instruments like you and me. How? The proclamation of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So let us draw near to Him and ask that we would be these vessels used for His glory. Let us pray. Father, we thank You that You have once again allowed us to hear your word. God, as we see from your word with the Holy Spirit, how he convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And God, you use us as instruments to do so biblically, lovingly. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to love the lost enough to love you and then love the lost enough to open our mouths to proclaim the good news and to do so accurately. Thank you, God, that you have saved those of us in here who know Jesus. You have saved us. We will no longer face the judgment that the world faces. We will stand before you and give an account. And oh, that day, Lord, how are we living now? Are we Are we ready, God? Are we living for eternity and trying to bring others with us, as it were? There's a call to action and a call to examination. Help us to grasp your word today that it would transform our lives. God, we also ask again, for the lost person in our midst this morning. Let them not be ashamed of Christ. Save their soul. If they have questions, let us have answers, God, from you. This day, before it's too late, tomorrow may never come. Today is the day of salvation. All for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.